what kind of bullcrap is that? Welcome back. It's episode 140 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, where there is no student loan forgiveness, or for that matter, forgiveness of any kind. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and major Indonesian social media influencer, and I am joined, as always, by the Kanye and Jay-Z of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Fellas, how are you? Fine. Why think- are you an Indonesian influencer? <laughs> we can't we can't discuss that in this forum, John. I think oh, you know that all too well. By the way, like there are a ton of things obviously for us to get to here, but John, I was specifically reprimanded after our last show because there was a, a major McRib announcement before we went on air that went unacknowledged on Law Talk, which I think caused a lot of people to lose faith in this entire endeavor. Really? So in the spirit of satisfying people's John Yu's food content, one person suggested to me that a way that we could uh, make up for this would be to have John Yu volunteer for us the single best item of Thanksgiving food. Oh, of course. Think carefully. No, it's not even close. It's the cranberry sauce. Okay, that's an incorrect answer. Richard? No, because it comes out of the can, and it retains its can-like shape even when it's out. <laughs> and it's totally artificial, but it tastes so good and must be spread over everything. That plus, of course, you all know, kimchi. To describe John as lowbrow in his taste I was say, food is down market ex- is his brand. Down market, out of the market on the downside. <laughs> I mean, if I were to figure out what it is that is the most distinctive thing with the greatest variation in creativity, I would say getting the right ingredients in a good turkey dressing or stuffing to be more precise. Um, so that's where I would put all of my eggs. If you get the right kind of nuts and the right kind of apples and the right kind of cranberries, even. Nuts and be- apples, that's not stuffing anymore. That's some kind of <laughs> no, poofy, no, John, poofy John. dessert. No, it's not a poofy dessert, John. This is a question of somebody who's a culinary master being chastised by somebody who is a natural vulgarian. Ooh, right? I feel like you reached too far I, on that you one, know what, You know what the best stuffing is? <laughs> Have you ever heard, Richard, do you know what a turducken is? I have no idea. Yes. <laughs> yes. He just stuff it with more <laughs> with more things. I'm gonna <laughs> resign my expertise. Expl- explain briefly, John, what a turducken is. This is a and and then tell us why so, you're explaining it. So the turkey is stuffed with a duck, which is stuffed with a chicken. <laughs> now here, I've never actually had one. I've only seen John Madden do eat one on TV. John, if we really wanted to bring that tradition in the 21st century, maybe we could do this for a law talk Thanksgiving next year. I don't see any reason why you can't go wire to wire on this and start with an ostrich and just work all the way down to a hummingbird. <laughs> okay, as long as we get a sp- spotted owl in there and some other endangered <laughs> birds, I'd be happy. Preserving your brand. Uh, okay. <laughs> I want to go, uh, well, it's obvious where we should start. I want to go straight into this because amongst people on the right, there has been a palpable sense of confusion the past few weeks. There is a contingent that has totally reconciled themselves pretty quickly to the idea that Joe Biden won the presidential election. And there is a contingent, which includes the president of the United States himself, that is screaming bloody murder 
saying that this election was stolen, saying that there was massive voter fraud. And John, I'll, I will start with you, a man who only months ago published a book defending Donald Trump's record when it came to safeguarding the Constitution. Does the Trump campaign have any legitimate shot with these arguments? I'd say no, not in court. I think this is, you know, throwing a triple Hail Mary pass across three football fields when you've only got receivers all shorter than five feet tall in the end zone on your side. There's just no way they're going to win. I mean, I've looked closely at the complaints I've been following because it's my home state of Pennsylvania that caused a lot of the problems. And the, the, the main difficulty for the Trump campaign is that the claims they're actually making in court don't change enough votes, even if they were to win, to result to cause a different result in the presidential election. A lot of the arguments that they are making are not suitable for court. They might be suitable for the state legislature. And this is something that was a much more uh, reasonable argument, although I think the time for that has passed too, which was if there were sufficient fraud and disruption in an election, well, then the Constitution gives the state legislatures still the ultimate right to choose presidential electors. But it looks like we didn't see that kind of systematic fraud. Um, at least uh, there's been no proof of it presented yet by the Trump campaign lawyers. Uh, but even if there were some, it would be really something for the state legislatures to consider to have an investigation. And then the last thing I'd say is the only thing I thought that was a potentially reasonable claim, just because it's how do you prove it or disprove it when you're watching from the outside, is whether there was any kind of systematic uh, corruption of the actual tabulation system, computer systems, because of who owned uh, the computer systems or someone hacked into the computer systems, which I might add is a federal crime and would be investigated by the FBI and the Justice Department and uh, DHS and the NSA. And I haven't heard of those investigations starting. But now the more you look at that evidence, the less it looks like there really was any kind of hacking or corruption of the computer system. It looks like it might have been an honest mistake just in comparing the returns from Michigan and Minnesota. And so at this point, I think uh, President Trump ought to let the transition to continue, uh, to, to, to start, actually, to start, and that President Biden is going to be chosen by the Electoral College when it meets on December 14th, and then the you know, the vice president and the House and Senate in early January will you know, uh, recognize that President Trump, uh, President, Bi uh, President Bi uh, Biden will be president. So, Richard, to a point that John just made, the ultimate goal of Rudy Giuliani and the people that are working for the president is not at least any longer to get results changed in a bunch of states and get the margin of victory back over into the Trump column. And we know this because Jenna Ellis, who's one of the president's lawyers, said this. The strategy is to delay and cast doubt upon the official certifications of the vote and get the legislatures in some of the relevant swing states to choose electors for Trump even though the numbers we have now show that Joe Biden won in those states. So I, I want to get your take on that, but let's just begin with a quick tutorial on the mechanics there, because if a lot of our listeners could be forgiven for not knowing that this is an option, that the state legislatures can intervene in determining the final disposition of the vote. 
Well, it's an open question as to whether it's an option. I think, in effect, to, to be ironic about it, if he really pushes this line hard, it gets pretty close to a high crime and misdemeanor uh, that would make him impeachable. Um, uh, what happens is the way in which the Constitution is worded, it says that the elector shall be coded according to rules set by the legislature. And it turns out that that clause is not the last word in constitutional interpretation, uh, because what's happened is we've had a very complicated a transitional mechanism. It started that the Electoral College was supposed to be a deliberative body chosen by uh, state people, and they would meet together, and then they would send their votes off to Washington. They would count them. If there was a tie, it would go into the House of Representatives. Very early on, um, it became quite clear that deliberative bodies do not work in trying to choose presidents uh, because it turns out that they can deviate from the popular will. So the device was put into place of having pledged electors, which meant, in effect, that you sent them there as mere messengers. Uh, they had no discretion whatsoever to do anything. If you didn't have a historical overlay of the electoral college proper, you would simply do this as a computational matter and not have any people involved with anything at any time. Uh, this system was challenged back in about 1952, and the Supreme Court said, yes, you can require your electors to be pledged. You can deny them any kind of discretion. The issue came up again this past year in a case called Chiafalo, and there was, I think, an opinion by Justice Kagan, which was weak on one point but strong on another. I think she tried to argue that if you look back to the original intention of the Constitution, um, it allowed uh, for pledged delegates to take place. Uh, the text simply does not read that way. Uh, so, for example, it says they're supposed to meet to choose, and then you exclude from the electors people who hold federal office. Obviously, you think there's a conflict of interest. If these guys were simple messengers, none of this would matter. And so what happened is Kagan made a very weak set of originalist arguments, and then in the end, I think she got it right. Uh, she said, look, we've been doing it like this for 200 years. It's not the role of the Supreme Court to allow these electors to go unhinged and to decide that they go for a against anybody whom they want. If you want to change that, find some other way to change. In all the history that we've had dealing with the Electoral College, it has always been understood uh, that the legislature picks two slates, one dedicated to one candidate and one dedicated to another candidate uh, in a two-party election. And then the person who gets the most votes um, wins on an all-or-nothing kind of basis. There has never been an illustration of the state legislatures intervening at the last day to change the outcome of the election. You could read the text to say, yes, they could, as a legislature may choose, they could choose at any time. Uh, but I think it is so beyond clear doubt that the so-called, what I like to call the prescriptive constitution, that is the accumulated set of practices, makes this utterly inconceivable and improper. It is a complete form of perversion and subversion. And if the Republicans are trying to do that through Trump, then they are going to make good all the charge that the man is a real genuine threat uh, to democracy. So I would call upon every state legislature to say, we are not going to do this. Yes, we are disappointed. We thought it was very mysterious that we go to bed thinking Trump was going to win on Tuesday night and wake up finding that Biden's ahead on Wednesday morning. But as John said, every effort to try and find some coherent account as to why that switch was suspect 
has failed. And so at this particular point, it seems to me that um, uh, Trump just has to back off. Everybody knew when this election run that the Trump administration did, I think, in many cases, a very fine job on a lot of issues. And the single biggest uh, detriment to the Trump presidency was Trump himself. Why does he want to go out of office proving all of his critics right? Why does he want to now make it appear that he is the world's most mortal threat to democracy? Why does he want to take people who at one point were prepared to go out on the line and support his administration and basically turn them into people who are now trying to aid and abet this kind of foolishness? I really think that this man has to have somebody sit down, read him the riot act, and what he has to do is essentially concede the election forthwith. I can't understand how this even is taking place. I don't think anybody who works for Trump should even announce this position. I think the Pennsylvania state legislature, the Georgia state legislature should unanimously resound it. This is a real threat to the democratic process because if he can do it, then Lord knows what other state legislatures under what other circumstances could do the whole thing and it's going to completely unhinge the system. So uh, to say that I'm opposed to this understates the level of anger and disbelief that I have, that anybody of sane mind could possibly put forward this kind of proposal. And I think Trump has just got to stop, period. John, your reaction to that, because the reaction to the president's actions amongst people who think that it's cut and dry that Joe Biden won this election, run the gamut from this is humiliating and stupid and makes the president look small to this is a man who's attempting to pull off a coup. So where do you fall on that spectrum? I I think the people who say Trump is ruining democracy, this is a coup, this is so exaggerated. I think it's exaggerated like many of the attacks on Trump over the last four years have been exaggerated. One thing to keep in mind is that the whole concept of a transition, the whole concept of a concession uh, is not in the Constitution. It's interesting. The Constitution actually uh, doesn't require the existing sitting president to cooperate at all. It doesn't actually make uh, the transfer of power contingent on the current president. It's one of the things, the the beauties of the Constitution, I think, is that uh, pretty much the choice of the president and the running of the election is given to the states. Uh, In fact, the founders, I think, wanted to be very careful to make sure that uh, the people and the states could pick a president and it wouldn't require the existing regime to cooperate. Uh, They didn't want it to make it possible, I think, for the incumbents to actually stop a new president from coming in. So notice that, right, the Electoral College works, the taking of the election works. uh, And that's actually one of the reasons it's so hard to show any kind of systematic fraud is because the power is devolved down to states, which devolve it down to thousands of counties. It's very hard to show their systematic election fraud amongst that many counties with that many votes across that many states. It also means that Trump's cooperation doesn't matter. You know, the Constitution just says, right, the Electoral College uh, votes will be counted, I believe, on January 4th or January 3rd uh, by the vice president with the House and Senate of just watching. And then when there's a majority winner, that person takes office on January 20th at noon. Donald Trump is no longer president at that time. It doesn't. That's that's it. You know, the uh, the the government comes under the control of, of uh, Joe Biden at that time, no matter what Trump does or doesn't do. So the whole thing about democracy being at risk and this, right, that's just because Trump is rejecting, as he has in so many other areas, he's just rejecting the traditional uh, practices, the ways of doing things uh, in terms of cooperation between the parties. 
but it's not necessary. There have been other presidents who've been very upset and have not really participated either. You know, starting with John Adams, right? John Adams wouldn't even show Henry up. Adams for, did not show up. Yeah, yeah. John Adams yeah. didn't even show up for the transfer of power to Thomas Jefferson. So, hey, look, the, the Republic will survive and the Constitution will survive even if Donald Trump sits there and doesn't follow past practice because uh, the Constitution, the founders anticipated something like this might happen and designed the system not to require his cooperation. Look, may I make, I disagree with you, John. I think we have two constitutions. There's the formal text, and it's quite clear there's nothing about transition in it. But there's also an accumulated set of constitutional practices and norms, which says that in a complex society like the one that we have, a president does not have to come into office on January 2nd, having no received no information from the incumbent about the various continuing matters that have to be dealt with. I thought back in 2016, one of the really reprehensible acts was that lots of Republicans or Democrats were saying that uh, Michael Flynn was in violation of the Logan Act when he started to talk with his Russian counterparts and so forth. That's exactly what you want to do in a transition. But how can you talk to somebody on the other side if you don't have the information? So it's not just a question of Trump being petty. It's basically putting a new administration into an impossible position by failing to follow those standard norms. Look, I mean, when Donald Trump starts to say lock her up, talking about Hillary, um, we know he doesn't mean it in a literal sense because he had four years in government and he never did prosecute Hillary Clinton for anything. Uh, So this was an effort to rally the troops. But in this particular case, the statement that he's going to make will disrupt uh, the ordinary operation of government. And for that, he ought to be harshly and totally condemned. I I find this thing so utterly incomprehensible. Um, Everybody has always said that, you know, maybe he's on the borderline of psychopathic and so forth. And the answer used to be that, well, you know, if you look at what he does, his bark is really bad and his bite really is isn't so terrible. But at this particular point, um, the dangers that he has are less bark and more bite. And I think that there should be a very, very strong bipartisan reaction against him uh, to make sure that transitions, which are so difficult any, and under any circumstances, don't become impossible because we have an intransigent president trying to get an unprecedented scheme for going through and then using his ability to get that scheme, which I think is really completely far-fetched, as an effort to frustrate the incoming administration. I don't care whether you're for Biden or against Biden, have very strong views on who ought to be his this, that, or the other appointee. I don't think that this kind of behavior is at all acceptable. And I think that the only way that the Republicans can keep their institutional sanity and to consolidate the gains that they have in the post-Trump era is for them to say, we're not going forward on this thing. Remember, Trump lost, and conservative causes did a lot better than anybody had expected. And to the extent that they tie their future conservative causes to this quixotic campaign of Donald Trump, uh, they will hurt their long-term prospects. So for heaven's sakes, Donald, back off. All right. In the world of actual governing, there's still a lot of things going on. Not least another surge in COVID infections recently. And we've got vaccines in sight, but we're not getting them on a widespread basis until the new year. So yesterday, President-elect Biden said that in a call with the National Governors Association, he had discussed with them the prospect of a national mask mandate, which is something he's been talking about since the days of the campaign. And Richard, I've seen a lot of conservatives react to this proposal by saying something along the lines of, well, you got a big problem, Joe. The Constitution is not going to let you do that. 
But in a conversation that we had off air several months ago when this was first capturing public attention, you said that's probably wrong, at least given the way that the Constitution is interpreted these days. So tease that case out for us. Well, I mean, that was then, this is now. Look, the first question you're going to have to ask is, what's the standard of review for these public health measures? And when we talked about this several months ago, we were talking about it in the context of a novel emergency. Indeed, we were talking about it before we had any idea of how the arc of these particular cases would play out or what the governors or the president would do. And the tradition of massive deference on the public health issues was very, very strong. Um, But at this particular point, we've now been going at this for about eight months, right, from three to 11. It has not gotten better. In fact, there's many ways in which it's gotten worse. It's also clear that there were many major blunders that were made by governors. It's also clear that you now have enough time to try to formulate a plan through standard legislative or administrative procedures. And so I think the argument that one man rule, which is what they're claiming in this case, uh, one woman rule in the case of Michigan and so forth, is much weaker than it was then. There are now rumblings in the courts that uh, we're going to have to look at some of these things and see what's going on. The mass thing is, I think, extremely sort of suggestive about this. This is an issue which is highly contested. The last piece that I read on this uh, referred to a CDC collection of studies, about 10 or 12, whatever the number was, all of which indicated that the masks were largely ineffective. The way in which one commentator put this was the saying, trying to stop the virus, which is tiny, 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 with a mask is like trying to stop an infestation of mosquitoes with a chain link fence. Uh, it simply cannot do the particular job. And so uh, the Biden campaign started to claim that you could save 100,000 lives by last wearing masks. Um, that would be, a th- say, a 100,000 a lives a day for the next um 100 days, right? I mean, it's just these numbers are so far off, you can't really believe them. Uh, There's also some evidence which indicates that masks in many cases are counterproductive for a whole variety of reasons. So um, I basically say if the man says he wants to follow the science, he's got to look at the science he disagrees with as well as the science that comes out in his favor. Everybody has to sort of acknowledge the following truth, which is as mask use has accelerated in the last two or three months and in New York City, it's a brave soul that goes out into the public, even into the park without a mask. Uh, Side by side with the increase in mask use has been an increase in the number of cases. This is even more complicated than it appears. If you recall, when we talked about this as a technical matter, both here and on the Libertarian, uh, a separate show, I said the general practice with respect to virus is if they're left unattended, natural, once people are aware of them, they will tend to shy away from contacts with other people, and the virus will spread, uh, essentially take longer to spread from person to person and will become attenuated. But then on March 25th, Cuomo decided to speed the process up again in the wrong direction um, by forcing people who are COVID positive into nursing homes. And we don't even know the number of people that died after that. There's nobody who's in favor of that strategy. Uh, But that created a different pattern in which now it turns out viral spread is becoming more malignant, more essentially toxic than it was previously before. So we have both the 
these patterns going on at the same time now, it's impossible to disentangle whether the virus is getting stronger or weaker in the United States, because it's probably doing a little bit of both in each of these separate places. I certainly believe that the government has to do something under these circumstances. Uh, But at this particular point, the idea that you can do this as a police power mandate without getting any put from anybody is bad. Let me just give one example on a point which I take close to heart. I think the new generations of vaccines that are being put out work by different technologies from the older ones. They're much more specific, so they have much less risk of adverse effects than the earlier one. Um, I think that the FDA, whenever it approves something, is generally usually reliable. It's when it denies approval that they're often be subject to attack. And so for governors like Cuomo to say, well, if the FDA allows it, I'm not going to recommend or even allow it use in my state. Um, unless I have it detected by my experts and God knows what techniques they have to do this. That's the kind of really dangerous sort of affairs. I think Trump should stay out of this. Uh, He's been of no good of anything on these issues. Uh, But as best I can tell from seeing the science, um, it looks as though these two vaccines are for real. Uh, The real problem is going to be in distribution, particularly if you have to keep it very, very cold. And I think at this point, we do want to have a technical discussion. But what I think in effect is that Biden is not really somebody who's interested in the science. He's interested in an opposing version of the science. And so what I fear is we have two dogmatism, Trump going out and Biden coming in. And in the meantime, the country will continue to suffer. Uh, we need to have more scrutiny of what's going on uh, by these people, more public discourse. And you cannot just silence a bunch of groups by saying, well, you're not the expert. We're the only experts who really count are those who agree with you. John, Richard mentioned all of these efforts that are coming from governors at the state level. I really want to get your take on this, partially because I'm assuming you were at that fancy dinner with Gavin Newsom at the French Laundry. (laughs) (laughs) I hate the French Laundry. (laughs) <laughs> Except for the mini McRib burgers. Oh, that's, no way that's the thing they have. The one, the one bite McRib? Come on. Yeah, so John worries about McRibs and I worry about Roman law. This show is launching into irrelevance, right? <laughs> but, who who but says John, that the roots of the Roman Empire weren't built on good pork? I, I think everybody. Um, <laughs> but John, you're, I mean, you're there in California where Newsom every day seems to be trying to find a way to top himself on the restrictions that he's imposing. I mean, how vulnerable do you think some of these measures are if they get challenged in court? Well, you know, they just announced uh, yesterday that there's going to be a curfew imposed starting yes. at 10 p.m. across most of the state in the most populous areas of the state. Uh, and uh, you know, we have a bunch of tiers. Most of Cal- I think something like 95% of the population now is in the lowest tier, which means a lot of things are closing up again uh, and might be that way for several weeks, if not months. And I, I, you know, I actually, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Justice Alito gave a very interesting speech yes, at the Federal Society Convention. You know, and I quite agree with that. I've written uh, something along those lines earlier during the pandemic, which is right initially at the outbreak a time of the outbreak or the beginning of any emergency, I think courts are going to be very deferential to the executive branch uh, to take the measures necessary to stop the spread or to ameliorate it or to deal with any emergency. But as time goes on, courts are going to start to ask questions and may even intervene. The case everybody talks about is this case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And I think a lot of people don't read to the end. So this is a case where uh, Cam- the court upheld the right of Cambridge, the city of Cambridge, to require mandatory smallpox vaccinations. You know, at a time when smallpox was a very deadly disease, I think something like 30% of people who catch smallpox back then would die from it. Uh, and so it was much more dangerous than COVID. 
And so the court said, you know, it's up to the police power of the states to uh, require these inoculations in order to protect the public safety. Uh, that wasn't Justice Pitney, by the way, who was uh, groaning. Although I think just the uh, he was not Richard's on the favorite court. justice. No, I think he was. was wasn't no, he? he was not. It was 1903, and he was went to the around? court in 1912. Oh, was he? Oh. So if you look at the case, though, it says at the towards the end, uh, it does say, well, you know, in the middle of this emergency, we're going to defer to the city of Cambridge and to a state to take the measure necessary. But it then says. But, you know, courts will begin to review and intervene um, as things go on. And I think we are now, you know, we're six, seven months after the initial shutdowns. We are now in that period where things have gone on. And so I think what you're going to see is uh, the same kind of cases are going to have more success now, cases based on um, different liberties. So you can't say political protests are okay, but going to church isn't okay. You're going to have claims that there's viewpoint restriction, you know, these kinds of protests are okay for Black Lives Matter, but Trump protests are not okay. And then I think the real issue that's going to really see how far courts are going to be willing to go will be the cases you're seeing them bubbling up all around now, these cases based on economic liberty. What happens when the court, the, the state has shut down businesses to such an extent that people can't even make a living anymore, that they're destroying the value of their property and their businesses? I can see, I think courts out here at the state level anyway are becoming more receptive. And I hope people bring more of those cases because I think courts are going to start to ask now that we're this far away from the beginning, is this rational what the state is doing? What's the justification for these distinctions that are being drawn by the state about what's allowed and what's not allowed? And I think the courts are going to be have a much more skeptical eye now than they did six months ago. May I make some comment about Jacobson? Um, people understand what was at stake in the place, and they get it wrong. Jacobson didn't just come in and say, I don't want to take this thing because I'm an anti-vaxxer. What he did is he pled that he had had all sorts of adverse experiences associated with these vaccinations, and he was afraid of his life. And that was the plea that was rejected under the name of the police power. And that really sounds terribly um, obnoxious and dangerous, because even now, when we start to put mandatory vaccine programs in there, if people have certainly physical dangers, they're pregnant, they have some kind of a rare disease, I don't think any statute which requires them to take this vaccine will in fact be upheld, um, nor should it be. Uh, the interesting thing, though, about vaccines uh, under Jacobson is everybody forgets what the punishment was. It wasn't that you had to take the vaccine, is that you had to pay a $5 fine. And it's all the world of difference between those two particular situations of having a weak liability rule as a strong form of injunctive relief. Uh, 30 years later, 25 years later, the following case comes up, which is to whether or not you could go into school if you don't take a particular kind of vaccine. And if the answer is you can't go there, that's a much more powerful sanction uh, than a criminal sanction of a $5 fine. And so one of the things that's going to make this thing extremely difficult difficult to work out is even if it turns out that what you do is you have a political environment which says, we're not going to make you take the vaccine. We're going to give it to you as an option. But some of you have religious beliefs, health griefs, skepticism, and so forth. 
But then the employer is going to say, just as today, we won't let you come back in unless you take a COVID test or a spit test. We're not going to let you come back to this job unless you certify that you get the vaccine. And the way you're going to certify it is we're going to administer it to you uh, so that there's no evasion. Uh, can you start to see those signs of behaviors happening? I, I just don't know what the answer is. On the other point, I think John is clearly right. Um, uh, these emergencies are stale emergencies. This has been going on for a very long time. Uh, you take somebody like Gretchen Whitmer or Garen, Gavin Newsom or Anthony Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo and so forth. Uh, all they do is they refer secretly to their expert advisors and they never do anything. I have yet to see a single one of these people put out a report which says, I'm going to require X and this is my threshold and here is why I have it. These are all done essentially without any kind of review. And so I do think that John is right, given the fact that they've been a calamitous failure thus far, right? Because remember, it's not Donald Trust who actually controls what's going on here. Who controls what's going on here is the governors. He is essentially at most an ancillary figure in this stuff. And they're the ones who have run it, and they're the ones who have bungled. And I think they're the ones who state and federal courts are going to start to hold accountable. It's going to be business claims being wiped out. It's going to be landlord claims of being confiscated with respect to their property. It's going to be religious claims saying that they have been shut down. It's going to be students saying, why on earth are you shutting down a New York City public schools uh, when the incidence of the virus is about 0.25% and the fatality rate is zero. I mean, there are going to be a lot of hard questions, and I do hope, along with John, that somebody actually tries to um, uh, force them to account. This sort of arrogance, this ignorance that we start to see on major public figures amongst the government is simply stupendous. Most of them tend out to be Democrats, I suppose, but I'm sure there's some recoveries in the mix, and I'm basically an equal opportunity skeptic when it comes to anybody who thinks that they should be able to make these major changes without some degree of public accountability. John, to that first point that Richard raised there, the whole issue with the masks may be a prelude to a debate that we're going to have next year about the vaccine, because you had a resolution passed a couple of weeks ago by the New York Bar Association calling on the state of New York to mandate the COVID vaccine, even in cases of religious objections. So if a state like New York did it, and New York would be a good candidate, because you need a state that's liberal, but also not full of hippies. This wouldn't work in Oregon. Uh, what what kind of Which, challenge? By the way, just legalize cocaine and heroin possession. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they, they got their own little vaccine in the works. <laughs> Via a ballot measure, right? Um, so if, if this happened in a place like New York, uh, what kind of challenges would it face in court? And what do you make of it on the merits? Oh, it's interesting. It's it's very much long. I, I agree with Richard's um, reading of Jacobson. The interesting thing is, uh, in the end, the state under state law couldn't force the guy to take the vaccine. He had to pay a fine. Uh, if he refused. And so I actually think that it would be uh, foolish for states to try to mandate required vaccines. What they will do, and I assume this is, and again, this is sort of where, you know, the private sector and civil society are going to cause us to, it would allow us to do much more reasonable things than having them forced on us by the government, is you know, me, Richard, we work at universities. I'm sure universities are going to say you can't step on campus without a vaccine. I'm sure employers will say we're not going to let you back into the office or we're going to let you we're not going to let you, uh, you know, come near your other co-employees without a vaccine. I could see insurance companies saying we're not going to cover you with policies unless you get the vaccine. I think that would be far more preferable and more likely to have higher compliance levels than the state, like a state like New York, just saying everybody in the state 
is going to be forced to get vaccine. Also, I could see the oh, the other big one, K through 12. I could see a state saying, look, your kids don't have to get the vaccine, but they also don't get the right to show up in school. Um, but if, say, New York actually did go and try to say it, then I think you'll get the question that Gate Jacobson, in a way, avoided because it was just a case about a fine, which would be, could the state actually coerce you? The court, you know, the courts have recognized this sort of right of bodily integrity, right? They that is the right underlying, in some ways, the right to abortion and other, you know, sort of personal privacy rights. Uh, I don't informed consent. Yeah, I don't know if the state can actually force you to do it. But on the other hand, I think the state could probably exclude you from society if you refused. and say, well, then you don't get to come out of your house or you know, enter into businesses. I think that's how they'll really try to do it. I think I I, I would expect that. Um, however, if I had to guess, this is, I guess, to answer your question, Troy, sorry it took so long. To, to answer, I think that courts would still defer. I still think given, even despite all this, if, say, the city of New York said everyone in the city has to get inoculated because of this, uh, I still think courts don't want to get into the messy business of uh, reviewing what's necessary in an emergency, even though I think people would have very good arguments why their bodily integrity is recognized in their current cases allows them to refuse. Look, when- I mean, I, I, I actually disagree with that, John. I mean, really? Said, yeah, take the man like Jacobson who comes up and says, I've already had these shots and I am extremely sensitive and I have a high risk of death. Uh, so what he's not going to ask is that you invalidate the program. He's going to ask that there be an as-applied challenge that he could raise that would be respected. And then what are they going to say? They're going to say, look, we don't regard this as relevant. Well, they say, let's go back down. And then he gets his internists and a bunch of experts on vaccines and so forth. Says, you know, this guy's got an 80% chance of dying if we make him take this vaccine and he hasn't committed any crime. I don't think there's any court in this country which would mandate the vaccine. They may decide to say, look, I mean, you can't go into civil society at all. I don't even think they would do that. I think what would happen is they say, uh, you have to be somebody who has to be tested for COVID at such and such a frequency and so forth. And if it turns out that this person is a sick guy anyhow, right, because he's worried about the vaccine, chances are he's somebody who self-quarantined over a large portion of the situation. So I I do think that what's going to happen is the most attractive cases for challenging the state dominance are going to be the ones that are going to be litigated first. They will not be per se attacks on the validity of the statute, but they will start giving exemptions. And at that point, you'll start to see a creep moving one way or another. And hopefully what the administrators will do will be to back off. What worries me about this is I think that the governors of these states are, in fact, as uninformed about many of these issues as could possibly be. And the problem that makes it so difficult is you have no idea of whom they're taking their advice from because they don't have anybody giving you signed statement. And then we have this public shaming of people like our uh, various great Barrington um, epidemic who say, oh, you're adopting the wrong strategy. And that has got to stop. I mean, the dominant strategies have failed. That seems to be pretty clear given what has happened. And now as you go into winter, it's not just going to be that you're going to have to disentangle the COVID cases. You're going to have to deal with standard flu-like symptoms and so forth, uh, which could happen, of course, even if you've taken the flu vaccine, because these are old generation vaccines and they're 60% effective, 70% effective, 20% effective. 
trifectas, we don't know, trying to figure out which is which is going to become an impossibility. We have really painted ourselves into a corner. And as far as I can see, uh, given the mistakes that were made um, in previous months about the way in which we tried to run this quarantine until vaccine strategy, um, which has backfired. And now when we get the vaccine, there are all sorts of people who have second doubts about whether you could force people, whether the states could test it, whether I'm going to take it. It may well be that it's a case of too little, too late, and that with all of our great scientific knowledge, we've done worse in dealing with this situation than we did in 1918 when we were dealing with a far more deadly situation in connection with the Spanish flu. So, cool. so, so one last thing about this. So we've had these two pieces of very good news on the vaccine front lately with both Pfizer and Moderna announcing that they've got vaccines, very high efficacy rates. And these both come out to, to some degree of Operation Warp Speed, the Trump administration's initiative. I, I say to some degree because there's this, this kind of stupid argument over the fact that Pfizer did the R&D with its own money rather than government funds. But, of course, the real government contribution here is the total streamlining of the regulatory process. And also the willingness to guarantee purchase. And this is a perfectly right. fine state-federal cooperative system. Trump did nothing wrong right, on but, this. But, but, let, but let me ask you something about this, Richard, because uh, the result here, I mean, it's truly remarkable – this is an instance where the president's penchant for superlatives is justified because we've never seen a vaccine developed with anything close to this speed before. So I went back and looked at the original announcements about Operation Warp Speed. There is nothing in there about enabling legislation. The regulatory streamlining, best I can tell, was purely a matter of executive initiative. So stipulating that these are extraordinary circumstances, you're going to get a lot more time, a lot more money, a lot more willpower directed at a threat like this than your garden variety public policy problem. It is still astonishing what a president was able to do unilaterally through deregulation. So how plausible in that light would it be for a future reform-minded president to come into office and say, well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of innovation we lose out on because of this cumbersome bureaucracy, and I'm going to jettison a lot more of it, and Congress can just try to keep up. How wide open is that door for a president who wanted to do it unilaterally? Look, uh, Trump has done, you know, uh, you know my Trump a la carte speech, right? He can go from one to ten, and here he's very much on the high side. He's already done a lot of this. For example, one of the things that's so vital when everybody is cooped up that you have very active telemedicine type arrangements. Uh, so that Zoom could be done across state borders. Or you sit there and you live in Washington, D.C., and your doctors are in both Maryland and Virginia, and now it turns out that you can't see them. And they got rid of all that stuff. There's absolutely no reason to put any of those things back again. It should be sanctified by legislation. Trump did the right thing when he got rid of this. The real tragedy, and we haven't mentioned this, is a drug known as hydroxychloroquine. It is generally highly disputed. Fauci, whom I regard as completely... Oh, yeah, warped. Richard, I'm not taking that stuff. Well, 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 you don't have to take it, but in fact, it's standard medical treatment that's used oh, no. in, it's in, in India, Bangladesh, and so forth, and their mortality rate off of cases is one-tenth of what is ours. I mean, it's really quite striking what the difference is. There's now all sorts of studies. I'm not mandating that you take it, John. I could tell you I have my packets of all these things at the ready. Are you kidding? Are you no, really? I'm not do you have, like, do you have I, I, and zinc, lots of zinc? Are you like uh, zinc, you, zinc prepped? I, I'm not a zinc freak. I mean, it's a tripartite <laughs> treatment. Um, and and what happened is, well, let's, let's go through the one thing, because you have to do risk-benefit analyses. Um, the current drug that 
they are pushing is a drug called Remsdivir. It gets an expedited FDA approval. The drug itself has gotten very mixed clinical result. It can only be administered essentially intravenously when you're already in hospital, and it costs a bloody fortune to use. The HCQ cocktail costs you about $10 per day per person at most in order to do it. It's been done with millions of people overseas so that we have better rates in Africa, better where they use this, because it's basically it's an anti-malarial drug, which has been used for 20 other things. When you have a drug that's been on the market for 65 years being used in thousands and millions of doses for multiple conditions, and there are no side effects that have been observed so that it's even permissible to use them for pregnant women, sort of the ultimate test on this, uh, the safety risk is negligible. There may be some heart complications which you could arise in, say, one in 2,000, 3,000 cases, but that's about it. And so the downside is zero. And then there are lots of people who claim that the upside is enormous. Uh, there are databases which have gathered these papers, and the studies are now in the hundreds. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good. But one of the things that we know about this is double-blind clinical trials do not work very well with viral situations, even if they work reasonably well and should be used in connection with things like stable drugs like cholesterol maintenance treatments and so forth. If you administer the drug too late, if you don't administer it in the proper combination, with the other things, all this stuff is going to fail. And the FDA has no sensible protocols for dealing with compound treatments. All of this stuff is done by informal guardian agencies. Um, when I wrote a paper on this some 11 years ago, I realized that there was an organization representative of many other called the National Comprehensive Chemistry Network. And what it did is provide all the information to tell you what drugs you should use in what combinations and in what sequences and in what dosage. None of that information comes from the FDA and it's all privately ordered. Okay, I just got off the Epstein train when there are these <laughs> shadow <laughs> agents. Richard, what are you talking about? Like, Okay, like we can have arguments about where the FDA is too slow. Or they don't know what they're talking about. No, no, but like Richard, we can't. Like you should be taking. Look, I I don't want you to take weird drugs recommended weird by drugs. weird scientists. They've been used hundreds like, of millions. I mean, of, John, I mean, the FDA is the gold standard. No, I mean, they're not the gold standard. They are. No, they are not. Because oh. what happens with the FDA is, look, take cancer drugs. Probably. Be, Vary depending on the conditions and so forth. Oh. 60 to 80% of the treatments are done by off-label uses, not approved by the FDA. And the legal battle is, sure, they could say what they think, but in fact, anybody who follows an FDA warning when there's an off-label use isn't guilty of medical malpractice. Any insurance company that sort of says, oh, if it's not approved by the FDA, it's not going to be covered, is going to lose out. Uh, you have no idea of just how irrelevant the FDA is once a drug is launched on the market for a single use. And that's been true of HCQ. It's been used for 25 different diseases. It turns out to be an omnibus drug with no side effects in connection with any of them. Now, any physician who doesn't want to prescribe it, fine by me. Any patient like you who doesn't want to take it, fine by me. But John, let me just mention one thing before. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to stop you from uh, doing uh, stuff but to yourself no. that you want to. Your, <laughs> no, no, just no, don't, no, don't no. Think you can sue anybody John, for John, I'm not like, trying to sue like, anybody. Right, right, right. Do massages and hot on. oils and I just want to make and all that one, stuff I mean, too. 
just one kind of observation about this is if you start looking at these things, uh, the risk patterns that you've seen are essentially extremely low. And what you cannot do is have a situation, which is what we have today, there is no first-line treatment for COVID vaccine, rather for the COVID disease, which is recommended by anybody in government. None. So what you do is you're supposed to go home and drink hot tea. And if that's the dominant standard of care today, then somebody, that's what the standard is. The best thing to do is to hole up, not go outside if you're going to help it until the vaccine is available, which is not too long. The thing I worry about, Richard, this this is my serious point. I mean, I love teasing you about your um, homemade resumes. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer in in matzo ball soup as a cure-all for everything, too. Maybe... Jewish mothers have been putting this hydrochloroquine in <laughs> chicken matzo ball soup all the years and nobody knew. But look, the thing I worry about is, and this actually goes for masks too, which was uh, Troy's original question, which is, uh, you know, you don't want people to also feel a false sense of security that there these things are going to cure them, that there these things are going to make them invulnerable and they take riskier actions. That's what I worry about more. Well, with I agree with that too. And, uh, and so but, when we're so close to the vaccine, you know, we know the vaccine's there. It's 95% effective, which is incredible, right? That's twice as much as a good vaccine would be for these kind of drugs. John, Why not just wait a few more months because and, you're talking and, and hold about- up? Until it's available. You're talking about a 1,000 deaths a day minimum um, over a very long period of time. And it turns out that the vaccine will not be taken by many and it will not be effective in all. And I think it's just uh, dangerous to say we look at one particular strategy and ignore all the others. The problem with HCQ is a political problem. Um, Let me just relate to you what happened in early March when this thing was first doing. Trump gets up there and he says he heard that HCQ had been sufficient in some of these cases elsewhere. And this was diffident, Donald, not mad Donald, whom we see on the electoral system. And Anthony Fauci, who's a virologist, not an FDA expert, not an epidemiologist, um, he rushes up to the microphone and he says there have been no double-blind studies that have been done on that. And so you could read medical publication after medical publication saying double-blind studies are one way that work under some circumstances, but the thought that this is better than other kinds of things like field representations and retrospective studies and word-of-mouth transmission that takes place is just absurd. So what we are done is bound by a man whose um, epistemology is essentially 40 years out of date. And what happens is it turns out that HCQ is not only indifferent, they recommend against it. And this is, I think, completely dangerous. And what happens is people like you listen to this stuff and you don't listen to people who take the other side. You want the governors to ban this, which they're not even allowed to do. They can't preempt the No, FDA. no, I don't want them to ban it. Well, they don't do want ban it in some cases. It. All, right. All right, guys. All right. We've done, we've done enough on this. <laughs> uh, enough on this. John wants <laughs> to... Uh, Troy so, wants me to return to calm and let, well, let, thank you, Troy. Let's go. Let's go over the court for a minute for something that was mentioned in passing earlier. There's the story that, well, let's put it this way: the sentence I'm about to utter tells you that the press is already struggling for stories in a post-Trump world. Sam Alito said something mildly controversial at the Federalist Society convention, <laughs> and and here's, I think, a good benchmark for this: the New York Times story about this was headlined in unusually political speech, Alito says liberals pose threat to liberties. And it's a very long piece, and the first 75% of it or so is dedicated to people reacting to what Alito said, and only at the very bottom do you actually get any (laughs) quotes from the speech. 
And basically, there, there were two grounds on which he was attacked. The first, as uh, was mentioned earlier, is that he bristled at some of the restrictions that state governments were imposing in response to COVID. And he said this in a very cautious, very qualified way. He noted that the government does have lots of legitimate powers in this kind of scenario. But the quote that everybody ran with was, the pandemic has resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty. So that's point one. And then there was also a section of the speech that got a lot of attention where he said, this is again, the actual quote, it pains me to say this, but in certain quarters, religious liberty is fast becoming a disfavored right. So John, is there a reason to be scandalized by a Supreme Court justice saying these kinds of things in a setting like the Federalist Society Convention? No. And this is, again, just rampant exaggeration by critics of conservatives. Uh, First, it's hypocritical because I could pull up a whole bunch of things that the sainted Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that were uh, I think more of a challenge for those who think judges shouldn't speak on issues that might come before them on court. court. If I remember, I think uh, RBG uh, made public statements about um, Donald Trump being a fraudster and saying she would move or all kinds of statements like that. So uh, it's not, first of all, if if the newspapers were going to apply this supposed rule about ethics uh, you know, neutrally and across the board, maybe they'd have some standing, but they haven't. But second is, even if you had that kind of rule, I don't think Justice Alito came anywhere near uh, violating it. You know, the, the part of it is the people who wrote these stories, I suspect, don't read Supreme Court cases that closely uh, because Justice Alito has said a lot of this in opinions. And there's certainly nothing wrong with a justice giving a speech where he basically makes the same point he has already made in a published opinion. He's already questioned how far some of these uh, COVID restrictions have gone. He's actually, I believe he called for cert in the case that came um, out of Pennsylvania, actually my home state again, uh, that questioned the limitations on political campaigns and the primaries because of COVID restrictions. I think he has raised doubts about whether churches have been treated properly under the free exercise clause because of COVID restrictions. I don't think he's done it. And then third, like these comments that you read, you're quite right, Troy. These are what people are upset about. Uh, I mean, these are just descriptions of fact. I don't see how anyone could doubt that because of COVID, we have had just factually, you know, great restrictions on individual liberty. Richard and I have been arguing about them, about you know, shutdowns, about access to health care. The question that he didn't address, which is, uh, and he shouldn't, is how he would judge them under the Constitution. But just to say that there's been these kinds of restrictions, I I mean, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's just, uh, you know, that's just before everybody's eyes. It's just a statement of fact, but it's not a prejudgment of the legal outcome of a case. And that's really what he's not supposed to do. And I don't think he did that. And to that point, Richard, to, to the point that John just made, that the Times story on this invoked the Pledge of Allegiance case from the early 2000s, where Justice Scalia recused himself based on some comments that he had made at a Knights of Columbus event, seeming to imply that that should be in the cards for Alito. And they left out a crucial detail there, which is that Scalia had actually commented on that specific case that the court ended up getting in that instance. And it also commented on it before, right? Um, Right. But but, but walk me through the propriety of this. I mean, as as an overcautious person, I'm inclined to think that if I was a Supreme Court justice, I'd probably just abjure public speaking altogether, A, because I wouldn't want to do it, but but B, just to avoid any suggestions of favoritism or preconceptions. So how ought justices to handle the tension 
between publicly expressing their views as individuals versus the duty of restraint that comes with being on the court? I've never been able to resolve that question for myself, but let me start with the other end of this. It was not just about COVID that he talked about it. Um, He was very much worried about cases like Masterpiece Cake, where the choice is you can hound a baker out of existence because he will not make a wedding case for somebody whom he has served faithfully for years and has recommended that he go somewhere else. Um, And you give death threats to that person. You want to put him out of business. You want to send him to relocation school and so forth. Or walking down the street to get another cake from somebody else uh, at a grand cost of $3 to you um, when the 200 other bakers are all too easy to make it. I I still regard the cop-out of Justice Kennedy in that case as bad. And so, I mean, to the extent that he's talking about bad cases and reminiscing, um, I don't see this as a violation. My own view on the subject is I generally tend to agree with you for Supreme Court justices. I'm not sure how I do it up and down the line. Um, For them to say anything, I think is the danger is it's going to be overread. Um, if I were ever put into that, somebody said, suppose, Richard, you were made a Supreme Court justice, what would you do with respect to scholarship? I said, well, uh, this is a very remote hypothetical, but I would stay back to my <laughs> Roman law stuff, my private property stuff. I would try to stay away from the constitutional stuff or anything that I think would come before the court. Um, but look, this is also true with respect to judges on the other side. And the other thing I think that that got uh, um, Alito to do this, and and this is more worrisome, is that he was obviously very taken by the direct threats that have been made by people in the Congress and the Senate saying, well, we'll get even with you guys in one way or another. And and so, you know, do you fight back um, from a public quorum independent of a case um, when you have been challenged by all sorts of things in briefs and otherwise by people who essentially say that we'll get even with you? Um, And my view about it is I think that uh, uh, the argument in favor of Alito is, strangely enough, if you get Sheldon Whitehouse or whatever his name is starting to talk about this stuff in briefs and in the Senate, uh, then the Supreme Court to some extent has to be able to fight back on these kinds of things. I would rather there be mutual disarmament on these things and so forth. Uh, The other point, of course, that makes this completely transformative is when you look at the kind of objection, particularly in the cabinet, or case at near hysterical levels, um, you see an institution being under threat. Do I see that with respect to the Garland case? No, because the Republicans basically exercised a right. They didn't engage in systematic defamation of a candidate that was coming forward. The Democrats had every right to vote as a block saying we will not support him. I don't think they had the right to run them through the ringer on all sorts of charges, most of which seem to be more dubious as the days start to go by. Uh, so, I mean, it's what's happened is you can't look at him in isolation and assume that everything else in the political environment is correct. Um, perhaps he should be silent. I would be silent under these circumstances, but I'm not going to sort of attack him and join in because I think in effect what the New York Times is trying to do is to delegitimate the court because they want to delegitimate a six to three conservative um, majority, um, which I think is actually misstating and misunderstanding what's going on. Okay, so let me close the show with this question, fellas, kind of taking us back to where we started. This has come up before in the Trump administration. It's always a matter of pure conjecture. And in many ways, it still is. But the the moment we'll find out is soon arriving. There have been questions for a long time about whether a moment would come 
when President Trump attempts to pardon himself. John, can he do that? And and even if he did, to what degree would that protect him going forward? Ah, uh, so this is addressed in this masterful book, Defender in Chief. <laughs> <laughs> I actually devoted a few pages to this question because it came up, you know, early in his presidency. And while it may seem, uh, you know, uh, self-dealing, a conflict of interest. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits it. And there's two reasons why I think that. First, the text. The text does have exceptions for the pardon power. One is you can't, uh, oh, there's three, actually. One is you can't pardon people for things that are not criminal. So you can't pardon people for federal civil causes of action. Um, uh, the second one is impeachment. You can't pardon, the president can't pardon people who've been impeached and convicted, you know, by removal from office. And the third is you can't, the president can't pardon for state crimes. And so one argument is, look, they knew how to write exceptions into the pardon power. Uh, they didn't say the president can't pardon certain people, including himself. So there's no exception. The second thing is I went back and looked at the debates during the founding about the pardon power. Because there was some concern about it. They did. And in fact, it's interesting. Uh, in the Federalist paper, the anti-federalists attack the pardon powder. Power. <laughs> Should be pardon powder. That'd be awesome. The pardon power. And they said, uh, you know, president could do exactly what people are worried about with Trump. What if the president pardons his co-conspirators in a plot to overthrow the government? What if he pardons himself of such a plot? And it's interesting. Hamilton uh, in the Federalist Papers, replied to these critics, and he didn't say ever that that's not possible. Instead, what he said, well, it's still worth it to have a broad pardon power because it's also the way the president can break up plots against the government by offering, you know, you're offering pardons to people who cooperate and turn states' evidence. He had the opportunity, but he didn't say that the pardon, the president couldn't pardon himself. So because of those two facts, I came to the conclusion that even though it seems contrary to, you know, these uh, ethical norms of self-dealing and being a judge in your own case and so on. None of those are in the Constitution, by the way. Uh, I think the president can, in fact, pardon himself. Yes, I agree. Um, there's no fiduciary duty that comes to the pardon power. Um, it is a check on every other branch, and there's no check on it in the Constitution. But it's also imperfect for what you can pardon. I mean, can the president pardon himself for offenses that took place when he wasn't in office prior to the time? He certainly can't pardon himself for future offenses that take place if he tries to conceal some crime when he was in office. So uh, this is a porous net, uh, which means that if you're give it full power, he's still got some serious exposures. The other thing I would just mention is that most presidents are very uneasy about the pardon power because it turns out the political payback could be very heavy. And so one of the things that happened under the Obama administration is there was a running fight with a woman named Deborah Leff on the question of whether or not they got sufficient funding in the pardon office and sufficient respect of the White House and of the enforcement officials that they could do their job well. Because everybody, I think, has come to the conclusion that in certain cases, the self-dealing is so bad uh, that it's going to cost you politically. And the leading illustration of that is Gerald Ford decides to pardon Richard Nixon, not even himself. And if you try to figure out, is there one issue that might well have led to the... Um, shall we say, the election of Jimmy Carter. Uh, Ford got relentless criticism for that. 
I thought he was actually correct. The next question that we're going to have to ask, and I'll end on this cheery note, is Donald Trump kept on saying lock them up, but he never prosecuted anybody for anything uh, relating to the campaign of 2016. Uh, what's going to happen? Is he going to be prosecuted or his chief staff, somebody like Bill Barr, uh, for what happened when they were in office? And I think that that would also be a terrible mistake. And it will be a question to see whether or not Biden will yield to pressures to do that. Uh, Bill Galston, who's, I think, perfectly sensible on these issues, said he thought it would be a terrible mistake as well. And, and so it may be that we're going to start to see that the prosecution issue is there. And if Trump thought that his people were all going to be prosecuted by a future administration for federal crimes while in federal office, you could see why he would want to move to pardon them. I would much rather that Biden made it very clear that he's not interested in vindictive responses on these occasions. So I'll stop right there. All right, gentlemen, that is going to do it for the November installment of the podcast. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, to all of our great listeners. We wish a happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. Stop the recording.